Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Our guest today is Max Borders. He is a former editor at the Foundation for Economic Education, the executive director at Social Evolution, and the author of the book, Social Singularity. He explains why he's optimistic about the future of freedom and how his team at Social Evolution are using technology to help create mutual aid and mutual benefit societies of the future. We go deep into the world of crypto, but we also deal with the simple idea that people who want to be free can also create a social safety net, not through government coercion, but through voluntary cooperation using cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. I exercise my personal freedom by using Kratom, and the only Kratom I trust comes from naturalorganics.com. That's naturalorganics, spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-X.com. You can use the promo code chronicallyhuman20 to get 20% off your next order. Thank you for listening, and let us know what you think. Thank you, Max, for being on the show. Oh, I'm delighted. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Uh, well, I have you on the show today to talk about your work with uh, Social Evolution and to talk about the, the mutual aid societies or the mutual benefit societies um, that you guys are working on to get the word out about that and how decentralization is, uh, is an alternative or decentralized charity is an alternative to the universal basic income and to, to the centralized welfare system we have. But before we dive into that, how did you come to the ideas of freedom and individualism that, that uh, these projects are based upon? Gosh, it's it's really been a long, long road. Uh, I used to be the editor at a, an outfit called uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, or FEE, which is uh, a very old and uh, well-respected organization that has transformed itself and really targets young people now. Uh, they're really the front door, I guess you could say, to these kinds of ideas, particularly in the economic sphere, but also in the in the ideas of uh, of uh, you know, individual liberty and, and personal responsibility. Uh, and it's it, sadly, I think it, it, it's well, it's certainly a well-needed organization today, uh, but I think it, it, it needs to be doubled in size. Uh, we it's just there's so many countervailing forces at work right now that um, that are at odds with this project of human freedom. And, and so, um, you know, groups like fee are still are still working on it. But prior prior to my work with FEE, I was involved with the Institute for Humane Studies. Um, and uh, it's also a, a fine organization for this sort of, you know, um, these sorts of ideas. And then before that, I did, um, gosh, I guess I was in, uh, I guess it started when I was 16. And I, I consider myself a little, a little, you know, having graduated from this sort of thinking. But Somebody handed me a copy of The Fountainhead when I was in high school, and that's what set me down the road. So I have to acknowledge that. I have to acknowledge that background and that teacher for having me set down this path. And um, and today it looks very different. The way I think and the way I approach things is very different from even how I was imagining the world uh, 10 years ago, but but very still very happy to be working at least tangentially in this space. Well, excellent. Yeah. I too had got introduced to the ideas of freedom. I was a Christian conservative 
and my brother came home from college. He's like, you've got to read this book. And his professor had uh, given him extra credit for reading Atlas Shrugged. And so that was my, <laughs> my entrance into um, the freedom world. And then from there, you know, Murray Rothbard, Mises, Leonard Reed's from Fee, his eye pencil, I think is, is amazing. The Law by Bastiat and all those, those other works. Uh, so there's yeah. a deep there's a deep philosophical bench I think for the ideas of freedom, but implementing those ideas I think that's where you guys come in right with social evolution that you're you're actually creating alternative systems to put freedom into action. That's I think that's that's pretty accurate. I mean one of the things that I I resist um, and and it's 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 nothing against individualism as a as a, a, um, a a worldview, but I think there's a tendency on a part of you know our cohort, I guess you could say, to focus on individualism to the expense of of other kinds of ideas. Um, and and so, you know, one of the things that we want to do with this kind of project is to really acknowledge that community is a powerful force. You can't have community without the individuals that compose it. Right. So let's let's be under no illusions about that. And people who are um, who are a more collectivist mindset should remember that. However, we also want to celebrate the fact of community for its own sake and um, and recognize that so many of the community structures that we've enjoyed and that have gotten us this far in the world as as a as a country uh, and even even. Well, for that matter, uh, many, many countries around the world, it's been the spirit of community that has um, provided social safety nets, has provided a sense of lending a hand, whether that's religious institutions or sort of private you know, mutual aid societies. These structures have really been – there was once a robust civil society, and that has, that has waned to a very great degree with the rise of the welfare state. In yeah. the 20th century. And a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, I've read on Mises.org, which is another great site for information about the ideas of freedom. And they talked about the history of the mutual aid societies and the friendly societies. And that it goes back basically to the beginning of humans existing as humans, where we were in small tribes and it was more of a familial tie. And then it became like a religious tie. And later on, it became like a, they also had an industry tie to it as well. And with the Great Depression, those things kind of kind of went away. And even health insurance was dealt with and burial insurance and all of these other things that we think are coming from these massive corporations were, were, were done at a very local level. Absolutely. And it's, it's, um, it's a shame, really, that we don't tend to look at, to each other anymore. I mean, there's a conflation, I think, on the part of many that – that the way you take care of each other is to outsource that to some central authority, uh, but that that creates that creates a lot of levers of power that we shouldn't be comfortable with. If you're on the hook for you know your your support check, uh, that that there's a, an implicit quid pro quo or allegiance to some some massive taxing authority for that, that's a lever of power we should be very very careful with. Um, and that's one of the reasons for my interest in uh, in this effort to create a mutual aid society or or perhaps better said at this point, mutual benefit society. It's because um, there's been this this sort of resurgence and in interest in the universal basic income. 
everybody's hot on this as a policy idea. Um, and I find it not only improbable that it would function in a way if, if you could if you could implement it, if there were some grand comp compromise, which is let's get away. Let's just completely get a, get rid of the welfare state and then implement a universal basic income while perhaps reducing also reducing the the uh, budget for, say, uh, defense, which is completely bloated beyond anybody's, you know, <laughs> I mean, I it think even even people who are very, very um, what you might you might call hawkish in their orientation would agree that it's just tremendously bloated. So um, in any case, whatever your position on national defense, it's certainly uh, we're spending too much money on it. And if you could replace the welfare state with. With uh, mutual aid arrangements, um, well, that's where I'm headed, but. With a with a um, universal basic income, I would, as a grand compromise, agree to that. I'd say, hey, of course. However, I don't think that's going to be possible. They're just going to want to add it on top of everything else. It's already bloating, and and we're on a we're on a, a collision course really with uh, with a, a tsunami of debt if we're not careful. So. Yeah, I think you're right on that with the universal basic yeah. income. We had Judge Gray on. He ran for Libertarian VP in 2012. And, mm -hmm. and he's a supporter of universal basic income. Uh, I think he's using the Milton Friedman model. But in that model, everything else would be scraped off, you know, and you'd go back to a foundation and only one check would be sent out, you know, per, uh, per month or per year. I'm not sure the logistics of it. But I like your model that it's based on a voluntary idea that people are going to get together in a decentralized way where there's not hierarchy. And that's something in your work especially in social singularity, your book you talk a lot about is holarchy. Am I saying that correctly? H-O-L-A-R-C-Y versus hierarchy. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Uh, more recently, the, you, uh, you may have encountered it, but there's, um, there's a, a thinker named Ken Wilbur who your, reader, your, your viewers may or may not be familiar with, but I'm he makes the distinction – um, uh, but between what he calls growth hierarchies and dominance hierarchies. And this is pretty much the same thing. So we would never, um, if, we're, if we're being honest with ourselves, Mother Nature is filled with growth hierarchies, okay? Right. Because Mother Nature is filled with vascularization. From the trunks of trees to the, the outermost tiny branches, uh, the circulatory system in the body, the center of which is the heart, the mahogany trees in the rainforest taking up most of the water as a resource in the rainforest. You know, we would not begrudge the mahogany trees their outsized domination of all the water as a steward of the forest resources. And yet somehow people want this radical egalitarian wealth distribution, for example. Um, there are all kinds of examples of w when it's healthy to have a vascularized system because in the case of wealth, for example, people are good stewards of wealth or they're not. Those who are good stewards of wealth generally have more of it, not only because there are returns on good stewardship, but also because, um, you know, those, those of us who are not as good as stewards either let go of the seed corn more readily or, uh, um, or just not as good at picking winners 
in the economy. So that's one example. But in terms of the universal basic income, it is a it is an attempt to sort of you know deal with this problem of of uh, the assumption that the the lowest stratum of society is in, is suffering in some way. And you know the the motivation behind that is not the the worst in the world. However, um, it the, the its boosters generally are not focused on the ill effects of a universal basic income, the potential what we call the human house cat effect. And when you have human house cats that are being paid when you're essentially being paid to be poor, uh, you're going to get less productivity. You're going to get less of all the good things that amount to a prosperous society, including the dignity that comes uh, very often with work, or at least in creative generative behaviors. So that was the thing that really catalyzed this notion for me and for my organization, Social Evolution, that we should really be focusing on mutual aid because the universal basic income boosters, notwithstanding Milton Friedman and Milton Friedman's idea was if this is to replace the welfare state and only if, then yes, we can do it as a compromise, much like school vouchers. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, it's crazy and it's going to it's going to create all kinds of distortions and it will. So people like Andrew Wang aren't really uh, for aren't really right now thinking of it as a replacement. They're thinking of it as a layered on top of everything else. And that is massively destructive in my mind. So we need a renaissance and mutual uh, mutual benefit. Yeah, I like that idea of a renaissance because it is like just like the renaissance of Italy. They were pulling from the Greek and the Roman, the classics, you know, to revitalize art and to revitalize literature. And that's the same way to go back before the New Deal and the nanny state was created in this country and see how people did it before. Because I think there's a huge tendency to make things overly complicated when they don't have to be instead of trying to fix what already exists. Yeah, it's um, um, another way of I mean, this is really an interesting point, Brad, in, in the following sense. And this is one of the things that uh, that I guess over my years as someone who's is concerned with human freedom, I've really come to see the benefit of. And it um, it is not meant to be at odds with any sort of freedom philosophy, rather complementary to it. But um, I try to think about the best of what people who have alternative worldviews or, or worldviews that are different from mine? What is the best that they have to say? And what are their deepest concerns? And one of those is an ethic of care. Okay, People on the left, for example, have are motivated deeply by an ethic of care and a concept of fairness that may or may not work, namely fairness and equal outcomes rather than fairness as proportionality. Um, let's just Say for the moment, though, granting that that ethic of care is is important and is a value that we should seek to integrate. I agree. I think we should integrate that value and we should return it to where it belongs, which is the breast of the individual and centered in community. Um, rather than outsourcing it to some distant authority and calling it care and calling it a day, which is most certainly not. Um, it requires care, requires your continuous engagement, your continuous um, vigilance, and your continuous responsibility. I think if we look at everything as the government ought to do something, 
then we don't really um, get to instantiate the ethic of care as we should and as those, say, liberal, liberal progressives are right about. Uh, so, you know, as, a, as someone who's not particularly religious, I think the best that we can say about this comes from, uh, from the religious communities in the United States and their efforts to um, take care of the least vulnerable in society, as well as some of the, the nonprofit and civil society organizations that you might find people who are on the traditional left. Um, and I, so likewise, however, so I look at the conservative view, um, and the conservative view is one that is we can't, we can't just pour a large S on people because it will it'll not only rob them of personal responsibility, but it'll, it'll reward a lack of personal responsibility. If we create intergeneration, intergenerational uh, pathologies like the dissolution of the family, that's, that is also a legitimate concern. That is also a legitimate ethic that we need to integrate. So as you know, a somewhat uh, and as a very uh, very libertarian type person, as I you know, I'll admit that I am dispositionally. I want to pull from both of these traditions and weave them together with mine and say, yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. Let's work together in common purpose and solve human problems. I think uh, rather than standing at odds with them. Does that make sense? It does exactly. I think listening is a good thing because. Um, you know, I started off as a Christian conservative, then I got into libertarianism hardcore as, as an agnostic. And the older I get, the more I see the value of those traditions, thanks to a lot of, a lot of the work of Jordan Peterson. And looking at the archetypes and these ancient stories that we've been told, and the death of God, you know, it was replaced, God was replaced with something else. And in my opinion, it was replaced with the state and with science. And I think that that can be even more dangerous than than fundamental religiousness, def, definitely. Uh, but your idea certainly the, the 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 worship of the state, I think, is one of the the greatest problems that humankind has ever uh, has ever created for itself. Interestingly, though, if we hadn't worshipped the state as we did as a human species, I don't think we would have gotten as far as we did in terms of human development. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword um, because I think generally speaking, when we passed from a, a, the agricultural society where, where people started having settled agriculture and had to defend themselves readily against people who would raid that food that was suddenly a food source where you knew where it was, Rather than roving hunter-gatherers that moved around in search of resources, once you had settled agriculture, you had to have hierarchies. They were an emergent phenomenon. We see hierarchies springing up everywhere to, starting 10,000 years ago. There's no way you could have gotten through that stage without hierarchy. It, it takes – to get to a networked state of affairs, you have to have a certain other kinds of arrangements, uh, institutional arrangements we might call them, or rules of the game. But – technological change has been a huge driver of that change as well. We're now ready to let hierarchy go, but I couldn't say that – I couldn't have said that uh, 300, 400 years ago. That's an interesting I don't thing. think. Do you think yeah. that humans are hardwired for hierarchy, especially the dominance I, I hierarchy think, or the growth hierarchy that we're kind of evolving into? I think we are um, 
I don't know. That's a good question. I know that I, I would say with, with a great de deal of certainty that some form of hierarchy is something that people are hardwired for. Um, and I think that that is even possible in the short time span that we've been around with settled agriculture. It's either a really, really profound and deep so, uh, way of thinking socially that has been passed down or it's hardwired in us. And I actually think it might be hardwired in us. And I think the left uh, so, and right paradigm as well, I think there's a biological component as well to that. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I think it's it's really difficult if um, if you have a leader who is fierce, who is uh, clever, who uh, can bring enemies to heal that would otherwise take your resources, um, and you you identify in that person that leadership potential, it would have been disastrous for us as uh, for any of us as a population not to rally around that person and that expertise. Uh, but what, what remains after war and after protection of resources is, is a, a kind of protection racket at that point. Uh, and nobody wants to let go of power after they have it. And it's not even clear that they should have from an organizational perspective. But, um, but we also have deep egalitarian instincts in us. And we also have deep individualist and autonomy instincts in us. And all these are competing for mindshare right now. And this plays out in terms of the, the, the great swath of society as political warfare. And I think the next project that we need to think about entering into as a human species is the reconciliation and synthesis of all these views in a healthy way. And of course, growth hierarchies allow for a great, a great measure of that synthesis and re reconciliation, despite the, the fact that it's not purely equal. Well, I think that's, that's a great outcomes. point about the synthesis of bringing together. I have a concept called future friends of freedom, where when you talk to somebody who's a socialist or they, they're not a socialist, they espouse socialism or support at this time, that there is a bridge from where they're at to where, where um, you know, liberty is. And I don't, I don't think that bridge is too far, to be honest with you. I think most people, especially in this country, can see the benefit of the free market, that everybody is, is truly a capitalist, no matter what the Democratic candidates that are running for president might not be willing to say. I don't think they like to admit that. But if, if you believe that you own yourself, and I think that's a deep issue for folks, that, that it's self-ownership. And that if you believe that, then we all are capitalists and that there's a benefit to the system that we do have. But there are also structural issues as well. And when people talk about the universal basic income on the left, especially in the right, they don't discuss the Federal Reserve. They don't discuss the warfare state. They don't discuss the war on drugs, which is, has been absolutely destructive on the fabric of society. That's absolutely right. I mean, um, this... These are some of these are I think inroads to, to interesting conversations. Uh, I was in fact I was talking with my with my girlfriend the other day. My girlfriend is um, is one who does not share my deepest sensibilities politically. Um, but we were talking about the interesting phenomenon of this guy Van Jones, who is a very very outspoken liberal progressive. He's a good looking guy. He's he is 
personality plus on television. And over the last couple of years, he's made uh, criminal justice reform one of his big issues. And it turns out he found common cause with none other than the Charles Koch Institute, right? And and some of the uh, some of the uh, certain state level governors and, and legislatures that were pretty far right, and maybe they were motivated by different reasons um, than than Van Jones was. And I'm not I'm not totally persuaded they were because. Um, it goes against the narrative that all, you know, all the people on the right are just racist and want to lock up all the black people and all this kind of stuff, which you, which you frequently hear. But I think, I think, um, some of the law and order conservatives are having a change of heart, uh, in this, in this way. And this is based probably on some, to some degree on budgetary considerations, but also, um, uh, the, just the inhumanity of, staying in prison for 20 years because you had a bag of pot. I think everybody is starting to see that. Uh, that and the, not only that prohibition doesn't work, it didn't, it didn't work uh, in the time of uh, Tommy guns, and it's not working now, right? So um, it doesn't matter what the prohibition is. You're going to create black markets and violence. So let's just stop doing that. I think that's the next thing to fall. Right. But, but certain kinds of criminal justice reform measures – and you can that you can find common cause with someone like a Van Jones on. We ought to start. We we ought to start doing that and just leave the other stuff behind. Um, heck, even if it's a universal basic income conversation where you set the ball rolling to talk with someone that you might not normally talk to, um, it's we're we've gone too far with the acrimonious behavior between partisan tribes. It's time to start really talking to each other and coming up with solutions that are really about the synthesis project that I, that, that, uh, that, um, I guess the, the best way of saying it is, is find ways that, that integrate all our values, um, to, to a degree that we can not compromise, but, but even better. I think, yeah, Just I think you come I up think with everybody, solutions. Yeah. As, as a point of growth for everybody on both sides, cause I think the left and the right, they need each other much more than they think because that kind of makes a whole human. You know, if you have the, the progressive tendencies and then you have the conservative and it's like the wheel of time at one time, different things are moving in different directions. But at the same time, to destroy everything that's happened beforehand is super dangerous and has led to some devastating uh, results. And like the 1917 Russian Revolution is one example. And, you know, Mao's great leap forward. And so I think that's what scares a lot of people. Um, when the progressives do start talking about this, this kind of stuff. But I do think, I'm glad you brought up criminal justice reform. We had Jason Pye from FreedomWorks on one of our episodes, and he discussed in depth working across the aisle and, and talking to people about uh, a common cause. And I think the mutual aid societies are another common cause because you can agree on the outset, I agree that some people will need help in life. And how do we go about that, I think, is the next discussion. And that's what you guys are working on. Well, and, and um, you know, I think most, most of your viewers would agree that it's not just government power we should be worried about, although I think people with the guns in the jails are the most powerful and the ones we should have more concern about. I mean, human history is littered with the bodies of dissenters, with the bodies of, of um people in war, with genocides, and so on. And these were caused by states. 
So yes, we should worry about the state, but we should also worry about the outsized power of, of corporations. And I don't mean to say that corporations are inherently bad, as some some progressives might, because you know the the corporation, such as it is right now, is a way of of uh, getting people to collaborate effectively uh, for a common purpose, and that could be a nonprofit, it could be a for profit, it could be whatever. But with technology and with new kinds of social operating systems like uh, holacracy, um, like self-management from uh, Morningstar, you know, and really just sort of injecting new thinking in DAOs and DACs, you know, distributed autonomous organizations like we're building for the purposes of mutual benefit. Um, you know, these kinds of efforts are going to change the game in such a way that they reorient our sense of what is possible in terms of govern governance for society and in terms of governing within organizations. So, for example, we can imagine with sufficient, um, we call them social operating systems within an organization, we can have cooperatives now where the profits are shared much, much more evenly, not, not, completely evenly, but as a growth hierarchy, right? Within a holonic organization that your contribution, the, the remuneration you receive from what you contribute is more in line with the contribution you make. Whereas in some corporate structures now, it's not clear what that is because the lines are drawn so formally um, that it, it's it's not as flexible and fluid as a growth hierarchy. So these structures, strangely, strangely, I think, are going to show the way because people are going to be in them and operating in them, and they're going to start going, wait a minute, does this scale to the level of society? And if so, why aren't we using it? And they're going to change their perception of power, both corporate power and government power. Um, but we've got to have a lot of working examples of this before we start seeing mass movements ready to adopt it as a new social operating system. Now, do you see with uh, Bitcoin, the price was the big news in 2017 and 2018 at the beginning. And it seems like the news has forgotten about Bitcoin, except to say it's dead again a couple times, uh, which, is, <laughs> you know, it's, it's obviously not. Do you see the people in the space that you're in still just as enthusiastic and optimistic about the power of Bitcoin and blockchain to creating positive change in the future? No doubt. No doubt about it. Um, the, the people who got sucked into it as, as a fair weather kind of phenomenon, a, a sort of an ephemeral get-rich-quick scheme, those folks are gone. The hodlers are still around. The true believers get it. They're still around. Um, and... Right now, we're in the phase of, uh, with respect to blockchain or distributed ledger technologies of creating good dApps, or if you like, haps on Holochain. Holochain is an early uh, and promising technology that that is a a competitor to to blockchain. I think is in, in it, and it's really based on this very, you might call it, um, progressive libertarian kind of thinking drives it. But that's okay. Uh, it's completely voluntary and it works. Uh, so that's one. Um, but but just let's call it all the DLT space, distributed ledger technologies. 
those technologies are starting to find use cases. So the first level was sort of the protocol level part of the ecosystem. Now we're starting to get real, or let's say the DNA level of the ecosystem. Now we're starting to get to some one-celled organisms, some multi-celled organisms. We haven't seen the Cambrian explosion yet, but it's coming, just like it did with the internet. Um, so I'm, I'm very hopeful about that. It's so early. And all of the people who were in 2000, 2001 going, oh, the internet is, it's bunk. It was a big bubble. Nobody cares about it anymore. Um, you know, of course, we have, we have seen the Cambrian explosion that happened since 2000 you know, on the internet. Likewise, we're going to see a similar phenomenon, and I want to be there for it, and I want to help drive it personally. I'm, I'm excited. Um, uh, we, are, we are building our DAO, our, our uh, Mutual Benefit Society, on DAO technology that is you know, very, very good indeed, and um, it's actually te tested and been working, so um, it's not just one of these write a white paper and raise a bunch of money and then have it go down the toilet after everybody pulls out of the space. It's really working. So excited about that from just my personal and selfish perspective. Um, but also Bitcoin, you know, just like the original, the original cryptocurrency and, and other cryptocurrencies. I just think it's about, uh, at this point, all it's about making it easy for people to get in it. User it's just about it's security, eat simple UX, make it like breathing and game over. You know, tra lower transaction costs, better UX and make it secure. It's game over that we haven't done that yet. Right. We're people are still managing private keys and wallets and MetaMask and all this crap. And it's that's the top five percent of society is going to care about, I say top, but let's, maybe it's the bottom depending on your perspective, but there's only 5% of the, of the population who's going to mess with all that and care about it. Um, and you get these people who are, we need to be self-sovereign in our, you know, financing and all this stuff. That's true. But if you want mass adoption, if you want to change the paradigm, you got to make it convenient for people. You got to make it like breathing. Like I want to be able to get there and make it as easy as like finding a date, swipe left or swipe right. You know, that's what's going to get people, uh, particularly in the developing world. Those folks need it most because they're inflating their currencies through through the roof, and and they're desperate people, like like in Venezuela, for example. Exactly. Yeah, there's a, that's a real use case for cryptocurrency, and I think we might yeah. see the same thing eventually in this country if if uh, we're not able to stem the tide on the, the deficit spending. Well, and we're, we're, we, we've got to see another recession soon. Mm -hmm. So what are they going to do when a recession starts? Print that money, print that money, print that money. I want to be holding some crypto when that happens because you got to go somewhere, right? It's either gold or crypto or sadly, um, you know, housing. I don't think housing is where you want to be. Because we're seeing too many parallels with 2007 and eight right now. So, I'm starting to see HUD signs crop up um, around where I live. So, you know, that was kind of the first sign that something maybe not is quite right with the economy. So I used to be a banker. 
um, for 13 years. And so I was in the middle of that mess. And uh, I, I can see parallels, definitely building everywhere and prices going up. And, you know, how long can can that last? I have never seen a better effort of spin than blaming Wall Street for the problems that the government created than the than the 2007 2008 crash but the but Satoshi Nakamoto knew the truth he wrote that in his uh, white paper yeah that it was an alternative to the current fractional reserve banking system yeah which is i think is is the, going to be the best use case for it eventually but right now you talk about the blockchain and different use cases we had Dr. Leah Houston on and she has an organization, hpec.io, and they they help doctors put their credentials on the blockchain so they own those like in a crypto wallet type deal. And so they're able to move around and actually own their credentials instead of having a third party hold them for them. So I think that, hmm. like you're right, there are um, real use cases happening right now. Now, specifically about your mutual aid society, your mutual benefit society, your DAO. Hmm. Can you describe a DAO and how that works for folks who've never heard of one? Sure. Um, I can go general to specific or the other way around. Um, so let me just talk about in general terms first. Uh, you know, a DAO is a funny thing in that it is got many different ways you can build it and structure it. But the most common one is to think of it as, okay, We've got a group of people, and we that group of people has a mission. But to say that we're decentralized, we mean we don't want to have bosses making decisions and running it on our behalf. We want to be able to collaborate at scale, meaning with lots of people, without somebody with the hubris to try to make decisions on everyone's behalf and screw it up. And that's called centralization, right? Right. We're familiar with it. Washington, D.C. is a great example, but also some, you know, crappier CEOs of the world who think that they're making really great decisions on behalf of the, the whole organization. And it's uh, and that's questionable. For example, the guy who took over Sears and ran it into the ground. So. Um, yeah, so with a decentralized autonomous organization or a DAO. What you want to do is let's there's well one thing you have to do is decide whether the resources in the DAO are are in a common pool or are retained by the individual members of and so that decision right there makes things really interesting and that's a rabbit hole I could go down but right now let's just say it's a common pool of resources we want to share it but we want the governance of it to be done in a decentralized way. So you got to come up with a governance engine that allows those resources to be dispersed or some other decision to be made, maybe a governance decision that has nothing to do with money, on, on behalf of the whole, the whole group. Well, the way we've done that over the last 2,000 years is, of course, democracy. So we can do better than democracy. The latest and greatest DAOs then say, okay – how can we securely institute a governance process that isn't as crappy as democracy? And you go, whoa, 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 Max, why is democracy crappy? <laughs> the reason democracy is crappy is that you I, – I call it the Kim Kardashian phenomenon, right? You might have 
only a hundred people watching this wonderful podcast, maybe a thousand. And the content of this podcast is going to be for the for the ultimate good of humanity is is going to be far more important than an alternative like Kim Kardashian. And yet we know one Kim Kardashian video is likely to have four million views on on YouTube, right? Right. So that's the way democracy works too. It 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 often um, not only suppresses minority voices that could be have more knowledge or more understanding about a situation, but it also um, it, it makes a decision on behalf of the the big bell of the bell curve, namely those who are just average in in, in their knowledge, their expertise, or or what or what have you. So we don't want uh, a Kim Kardashian system of governance. We want um, a governance system that balances these different considerations in such a way. But the most important thing is creating skin in the game. When you go to the voting booth, you have very little skin in the game. You have nothing to lose. So you can vote essentially your conscience, which might just mean I want to stop global warming and I want to vote for the person that, that makes me look good. And, and there's no direct cost to your behavior when you vote for the Green New Deal candidate, for example. However, if you have a system where there's skin in the game, you have something to lose by virtue of making a good or bad choice. You're going to be much more careful and deliberate about not only evaluating that particular proposal or candidate, um, but the outcome as a group for the group is going to be generally better. Um, and that's why I would much rather the country be run by a prediction market than – uh, for example, uh, uh, just basic democracy. Um, but there are other considerations. So I'm way, way over describing a DAO right now. But the essence of it is resources, common resources, common governance, and a decision process for how money gets dispersed or decisions get made. And that's really the essence of it. Are they are those decisions being made? Is that an algorithm or is that um, a, a jury pool or is that just a select number? Is it like a rotating number of people that vote on it, or is that really at the discretion of the person creating the DAO? Or all of the all of those governance protocols are at the discretion of the person creating the DAO. But the thing you want to do is be as inclusive as possible, uh, because if you're a member of a community, you want to ha you want to be able to participate relatively equally with other people. You don't want people to be able to buy votes mm -hmm. because that's kind of the system we have now, and it doesn't work very well. Um, you want um, – the algorithm is designed to facilitate the governance process, not to do the governance for you. I think that's an important that would, point. Yeah, that would be artificial intelligence mm -hmm. running the world, and we don't want that. Right. We want collective intelligence to make you know unitary decisions on behalf of groups, right? But there are other ways to do it too. There's a, a phenomenon called um, dominant assurance contracts, which uh, if you think about – this was devised by a fellow, Alex Tabarrok, who writes for uh, Marginal Revolution blog. He actually came up with this idea, and it's, a, it's a, an improvement on the assurance contract, which is essentially a Kickstarter-like way of making a decision. If we all contribute uh, enough, then the thing passes. You know, I say, I say to myself, if everybody else chips in this much, 
then I will chip in, you know, then I will chip in. So there's a sort of escrow. And if, if enough people chip in, then the thing happens and, and it, it solves the public goods problem. Um, because people have skin in the game and they're going to be affected by that choice and they can see if if they vote with their dollar to something that's not going to work or doesn't get the, the funding, then they're more likely to vote their dollar towards something that is going to work, it looks like. Right on. Right on. That's right. And this this um, means basically that if you have a um, – Some sort of what we would con traditionally think of a public good, you can have private provision of it. People used to think that you there was no mechanism for private provision of public goods, but now there is. Um, and Alex Tabarrok is one of the the ones to thank for that. Um, that is in, but there are all kinds of models for how you govern common resources, and there are situations where you got to do that. You know, it's unavoidable. So even the most ardent anarchist is going to acknowledge sometimes that there are things that we do in common, decisions that meet, meet, sorry, need to be made on behalf of the whole group. Um, and so the reconciliation of individualism with, you know, the needs of the many happens through the best through the programmable incentives of the blockchain. There are just so many new governance structures that are being created right now that it's 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 an it's a wonderland of innovation. And it's it's not even hit us yet. And is that is that replacing like the ICO market, which was crazy with the initial coin offerings there a couple years back? Has that matured into these type of government governance systems? Is that what you're seeing now that there's that much of a um, of a variety and a different kind of these different for different use cases? Yeah, and and, and ICOs were uh, I guess you could say were a type of uh, assurance contract, um, but they. Uh, you know the, the the big thing about the ICO wasn't wasn't the structure of crowdfunding. You know, lots of things can crowdfunding is a thing now. You know, and it's you know um, ICOs are just crowdfunding using tokens. Um, I think the to to separate those out a little bit. I think the crowdfunding um, aspect of things can inform the development of DAOs, but I think DAOs are less one-shot deals, yeah. right? So an ICO is sort of like a one-shot deal. Mm -hmm. And some of the innovations and in, in, in evolution of ICOs is continuous funding or bonding curves and all this other sophisticated stuff that I, I wish I could tell you guys I understand, but I don't. <laughs> but I've heard about them and I can and I can drop them in the context of this conversation and, and sound smart, but I really don't know what they are. I don't know what algorithm means, so I just, I've just heard people say that. So. <laughs> the essence of it, though, is you want early capital quickly, mm -hmm. but there's a certain kind of decay that happens over time with respect to the expectation of returns. And you want that to stretch out further over time and not be these punctuated tranches where, that encourages speculative behavior that's not very healthy. Pump and dump um, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there is an evolution in that space. But I think for DAOs in particular, 
the ongoing, you know, there are discrete governance issues within the DAO, but the community is and the organization is has ongoing issues, and they return to the process cyclically. So it's a little bit of a different kind of structure. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Now, yeah. with with your specifically with social evolution. Um, mm -hmm. Are you guys close to launching that? And what are the specifics that you're willing or comfortable talking about with that one? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, wow, this is a really good uh, – we just talked this week as a team about we need to start practicing our elevator pitch because we're going to be raising money in the coming weeks. That's exciting. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, the, the elevator pitch, if you could uh, put it that way, is um, – we are a mutual benefit society for decentralists, okay? And the, there's a slight – the slight change from aid to benefit is, is really as follows. We know that we need to start – we want to take over the world, of course, and eventually be about mutual aid. And, and being about mutual aid is, is really about creating structures that help lift up those who have fallen, sort of like social insurance. Um, but – we realize we're probably doomed to fail if we try to go up against the welfare state right now because it's just so strong and the incentives are so strong. And getting people to exit the welfare state and enter a mutual aid kind of agreement is, is going to take some doing. It's going to take some use cases and some propagation that might need a lot more capital and it might need a lot more in the way of uh, improved UX just like we were talking about earlier with cryptocurrencies. So it's like, okay, forget that. What we're, what we're about now is people who are already in this space and who are innovating. We are about decentralists. So we want to take care of our own first. I like that. So, yeah. So mutual aid is a part of it, but I know the felt need of, of entrepreneurs, innovators, and investors in this space is not necessarily getting picked up when they fall, although that's a component of this society. You can – submit a proposal to the community that says, hey, I need two months worth of uh, rent just so I can work on this app, but I, I'm close, guys. Here's my work, you know, and show the GitHub account and all that stuff, right? We're close. We're, we're close to launching this thing. I just I just need a little help to pay my rent because I, I, I can't work on this if I have to go back and get my job at whatever, you know. Um, so that's a part of it, but the benefit part is we really think the community is going to get behind high-impact people and projects that are going to drive de the decentralization space, that are going to drive forward this Cambrian explosion. So it functions like a self-organizing social impact fund. Even if you get rejected, your proposal gets rejected by the community at first, it's going to be in a loving way because the community is going to say, well, here's how you make it better. Or you, here's how you can go back to the drawing board. Come back in two months after you've done some revisions and you might get this, right? So it's not just about how can I get money, although that's a part of it, money for my project. It's also about how can I get feedback from some of the smartest people in the world who care about the same things I care about and lock arms in solidarity with other people who care about underthrowing power around the world, corporate or government so what your your model is that you're trying to to advocate and to help those who are already in the system or within the space to do more is that accurate versus uh, mutual 
uh, aid society that would be focused on helping people within a, an industry or a religious context who are fallen on hard times or sick or even died and helped to bury them. Yeah, and make no mistake, we want to get there, but as a hard-nosed entrepreneur, I know the best, places to, best place to start is with people who get the tech and to get fully capitalized. And once we're there, once we have that, then we can start propagation networks that are more focused on mutual aid. And that proof of concept flows out of our big DAO, this first DAO. And that's an exciting idea that this is a this is a multiple stage project where the community can start just it, it's like a um, slime mold or or some sort of mycelial network. Like once people start making these interesting projects, uh, some of those projects might be just to take the exact same governance system of this DAO and have a different, slightly different mission, but use our software, use our use our uh, our system to create different forms of mutual aid. And, and, and it grows and grows and grows and grows, and we'll be delighted with that if that happens. But we knew we have to start somewhere based on a, a, a very targeted customer persona, namely people like us who are watching this right. and creative innovators, you know. Um, and it could be creatives too, like, uh, you know, Thomas K uh, out of uh, the Netherlands who makes, you know, the George Ought to Help videos, right? That guy may want to make a video and want to ask the community, hey, can you support creating this? I've got this script. If I can raise $5,000, I can create this awesome decentralist video, and I think I can get 100,000 views on it. And if it passes, he gets those resources. So it's not just about you know um, starting businesses. It could be anything that pushes decentralization forward. And that's – we think we, we, we think we have a home for people. And we're creating a home for our tribe, but eventually that's going to have propagate new tribes with new needs and new missions. And that is just, that's what gives me out of bed every day is thinking about that future. That is extremely exciting to build a strong core like that, because I think you write a lot about the fractal nature of freedom and the fractal idea of, of human experience and that, especially with the decentralized network, uh, that you can scale up from a one or two person uh, really ethical framework and get that to work at scale. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it's a it's it's a scary time because there are so few use cases, so few. Uh, I, I, there are a lot of examples um, in the book in the social singularity. The book you have you can. You probably read a, a, about a, a number of them, but one of the first is the Bitcoin ecosystem. You know, the developers who are working on Bitcoin, they're all around the world. The miners are all around the world. It's not, um, you know, there's some arguments, some internal arguments about how it's Bitcoin is centralizing and that's why we forked and made Bitcoin Cash and all that stuff. But apart from those internecine squabbles, find any number of cryptocurrencies you like, Dash is a good one. They operate, they've operate. they operated a DAO for a while that's really quite successful. And these communities are able to keep going and working and making, creating value without, uh, you know, bosses, essentially. 
So uh, Brian Robertson is a member of the Social Evolutions Board. He's a developer of Holacracy. He's created a completely uh, a complete management structure that requires no bosses, no middle management, no outsourcing your brain to someone else. You are everybody's an entrepreneur. Everybody's contributing to the entire organizational corpus. So it's interdependency. It acknowledges your individual autonomy, but you serve the mission. The mission is the boss. And that service of the mission binds us together as a community of value creators. And it's just such a beautiful system. If anybody's never heard of a holacracy, pick up the book. It's fantastic. Uh, Chris Rufer out of uh, California runs a tomato processing plant that makes tomato paste. It's the largest in the world. If you eat spaghetti or salsa or whatever, probably 75% chance that you're eating Chris's product. Again, no management hierarchy. It's completely self-organized. So there are proof. There are proofs out there that this can work. And the question is, which ones can scale? Brian Robertson says his can scale to the level of society. And if he's right, we ought to do it. That's exciting to hear that you're not hearing that stuff in the news. All you're hearing in the news is is um, tribalism, is a lot of going back and forth, and a lot about squabbling basically over the seven trillion dollars that taxpayers, you know, spend on government each year. So it's good to hear about these cases where the power is returning back to the individual in voluntary transactions. And before I let you go here, I'd like to hear your take, Max, on the difference between voluntary charity and in the welfare state and to make a case for why voluntary charity is the only real charity if that's I'm not, I don't mean to put words in your mouth but that's I think where you're going on that yeah yeah no you nailed it um, I think I could say let me see if I can do this you you prompted this and I wasn't expecting it so let me see if I can do it let me give you five reasons why voluntary charity is better than the welfare state first Local knowledge. Okay? When you know someone in your neighborhood or in your family is in need, you might better understand the source of those needs. And the source of those needs might be something that that person needs to change in their lives, like putting down the bottle or the crack pipe or whatever. Okay? So, when the government rains largesse from on high onto people, it treats them as abstractions, as data points. And you could be feeding people's problems rather than becoming a part of their solutions. Voluntary charity humanizes, rehumanizes contact with individuals by individuals. So that's the first thing. That local knowledge is important. Second, the welfare state destroys communities in a lot of ways. Communities are based on common mission or common need. The way we get together and start talking is not just proximity and collisions on the street, although that's part of it, but it's also uh, comes, it can come from uh, having a sense of solidarity around some common value set or more importantly a common uh, need or acknowledgement of a, a need in someone for the purposes of mutual uplift 
that those community structures, the invisible filaments that tie people together can be destroyed by dropping, dropping money on people from helicopters, which is essentially what it is. Mm-hmm. Third, the welfare state has an administrative class that is just way too bloated and skims off the top. And they're a permanent cost on society. Uh, I don't think that that, uh, that, that that people who participate in that system are actually creating value in society. Uh, they're not doing anything that that is that contributes to the ecosystem. They're just they they might manage the rubber stamps. They might um, you know stand, uh, be the person who's standing there at the welfare line. But beyond that, they don't create actual value. That's three. Voluntary charity is better than the welfare state for deeply personal reasons. It's not enough if you love your fellow human being to say, tax me and I'm good. You have to actually contribute and be an agent, a free agent who is – who's giving those resources to someone else and making sure that the resources you're giving actually have a positive impact on the lives of those you would give it to, right? So that's super important. That is, so that's actually two in one. Um, the first thing is that it's real, it, it's real compassion, real love, not artificial, outsourced compassion. Like I go to the voting booth and vote for my guy and I'm – and I can virtue signal at that point. It is really taking care of your fellow man and making sure you're doing it in a responsible way. Um, and then sort of the, the last part of that is it um, is the goodness that comes from doing that. Um, not, not just the good feeling that you can get um, out of it, which attaches to something real, but the psychological disposition of responsibility for each other that returns in a case of a robust civil society. Um, I think that's so. A, I hope that yeah, I hope that captures great, it. That's a great way to put it. That it it restores community and responsibility without infringing on people's uh, liberty because it's done voluntarily. So when you have a gun, well, and that's that's a big one too, of yeah. course. Yeah, well, if you, you have a gun have to... pointed to your head, you know, telling <laughs> you to give up your wallet so they can take a dollar out and give it to somebody else, that that to me is um, the opposite of charity. That's uh, that's more like theft. Well, it, it certainly it, – if it's not, it comes awful close. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I had a guy the other day was telling – you know, who was just I – know, and I know we need to wrap, so no, I'll make you, it quick. No, you're fine. There's a booster of Elon Musk on, 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 on social media the other day. He was like, Elon Musk is the most wonderful genius in the world, and we should all aspire to be like him. And I made a little comment and said, hey – he is, a, he is a genius, but I wish he didn't have to take subsidies for every business he has. None of his businesses would be alive without subsidies, and those come out of all of our pockets. And he was like, you know, basically browbeat me saying, oh, well, you, you know, are you gonna, you're, you're going to change your tune when we're standing on Mars and this, that, and the other. And it's like, hey, man, if you want to send a group of people for close to a trillion dollars to be able to set up a colony in high radiation, low gravity situation. That's great that you're all about that, but there are about a thousand social problems that need to be solved before we send humans to Mars. Okay. I'm sorry. 
and 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 it, and I agree with the even the even the progressives on this crony capitalism in service of some some grand vision to go to Mars should it, it should be uh, secondary to lifting up the poorest people in the world first by by not not redistributive means necessarily but through allocating people and capital to entrepreneurial ventures that lift all of humanity up. That's the only way to do it. Anyway. No, that's so a great point. Over. I've I've done I've made that mistake myself. I don't do that anymore. It was an Instagram post and I just put that uh, something about subsidies and I've never gotten that much hate on Instagram before. So I, I've backed off on uh, criticizing Musk as well, Elon Musk. So uh, yeah, if I, I'm glad that he's doing what he's doing, but at the same time, you know, go on the private you know, the private equity markets, go to Wall Street, you know, go to the places because he's raised tons of money with that as well. You know, uh, having taxpayers back your idea, um, if you, you know, if you were given $4 billion, I don't know what you could accomplish, but I'm sure we could probably think of something pretty good. <laughs> Lots of stuff. <laughs> now with your, uh, before we leave here, now with your project, with your DAO, how close are you guys to launching and are you going to have your own token or is it going to be uh, blockchain based with Bitcoin, are you going to have a, a, a separate currency? Yeah, we're going to have uh, actually multiple tokens. Okay. Uh, but the primary token for investors uh, will be um, currently our initial raise is, is a, an equity raise. We're waiting on the SEC to simmer down a little bit on what it's going to do with respect to tokens. Hmm. Um, eventually, we'll do a larger raise and convert that small group of. Uh, of, of equity holders to security token holders. So it's probably going to be a security token, and that's the environment, unfortunately, we're looking at because we're incorporated in the United States. That being said, the Evo token will be a um, will be for investors. There will also be tokens inside the ecosystem that, that function in certain ways. Um, so, for example, um, when you have a pool of resources, you don't want it to be super volatile. So we'll probably use a, a we we will certainly use a coin uh, like like a Maker Dies stablecoin that is um, stablecoins are cryptocurrencies that are that that don't have wild fluctuations they have an algorithm that just keeps them steady so that you know you can count on your money being there and it's it's um you know people are willing to make that trade off for you know of course people in the if if we had a a pool or a, a collective pool. From for our members to disperse resources from, if it grew 3x or 4x in a couple of years, I'm sure they would be delighted. But they would be horrified and they would leave us if it was cut in half in six months. Right. So we don't want that to happen. Probably going to have a stablecoin involved. Um, and there's some non-fungible tokens that we're using internally for for other things like um, you know we we we're all looking after each other and we want to reward each other's. Uh, contributions to the community. So those tokens, they'll be very, very. To token management's going to be easy. We're 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 hyper focused on UX, but uh, the main thing is, yeah, we're going to have a token for for a raise to make sure that we have the capital we need to to rock and roll. And we're not going to go out and try to raise twenty million. Just just no point. You know, those days are over, and I'm glad they're over. Frankly, we just need what we need to make this community happen to draw people into it. And it'll grow to where it needs to grow organically, and that's what we're we're gonna do. Well, fantastic! I think that's a great idea. I think decentralization is a um, 
it's an it's an option for people who maybe want to fall into the nationalist camp because I think that that's one step away for people. I think you wrote about this who are upset at the elites and the people that are running the show. If you're upset about that, you can either go really the progressive route or the nationalist route. But there's another way. It's the decentralist route. So I'm glad you guys are doing what you're doing over at uh, Social Evolution. And where, where can people find you and also your work, Max? Um, they can find, um, uh, about, find out about our nonprofit uh, arm of the organization at uh, social, social-evolution.com. And um, they, you can you know, send us, send us in a, put your email in there and we'll, we'll start spamming you basically okay. about all this stuff. Gotcha. Um, there's also uh, a dummy page that we put up last week uh, if you're okay with that. If your if your listeners are okay with that, which is socialevolution.io, and um, socialevolution.io is just an email catcher thing. Again, that's spamming you, but that's more if you're in, if you're interested in investing. Um, you can also get in touch with me, Max, at social-evolution.com, and of course, if you're interested in these kinds of ideas, they might sound wacky to some, but if you're fascinated by the kind of things we're talking about. I think there's no better start than The Social Singularity, the book, and it's on Amazon. Yeah, definitely. I think it wraps up everything that we talked about today, and it goes into a lot more depth about not only the philosophy behind this, but also the benefits of what decentralization can bring not only to the individual, but also to society at large. Amen. Couldn't have said it better. Well, thank you, Max, for being on the show, and thank you, everybody, for joining us today, and we will see you next time.